0: Did Sati spur the first public debate on women's consent in India? Why was the 1891 Age of Consent Act so controversial? And how did Hindu women become the face of the Hindu nation? They do it's very interesting that a lot of the demands were at point. Hi, this is In Perspective, the Swaddles podcast series where academics reveal little-known facts about Indian history, society and culture. And I am shrishti In this episode, we take you back to a conversation from August 2020, when we spoke to historian Dr. Tanika Sarkar on widow remarriage, sati, age of consent and some of the most interesting debates on gender in colonial India. So to start off with Dr. Sarkar, I wanted to sort of talk about the age of consent debate and the debate around the Widow Remarriage Act in the 19th century, where you've spoken about the sort of complicated power dynamics that were at play when it came to framing both the laws. Um, if you could tell us a little bit about that, and was women's perspective taken into consideration at all?
1: Both are similar in the sense that both were guided by the Colonial category of personal laws. And that's something that needs to be elaborated a bit because uh, historians don't usually take it into account. But from 1772 onwards, the state had, the colonial state had very clearly said in so many words that in the entire area of belief, ritual, caste, marriage, divorce, dower, um yeah, succession, inheritance, adoption, Hindus, Muslims, subsequently Parsis, Christians, etc., would be governed by their scripture and custom. And no new law would be made that violates this. And new laws in this region can only be made if they conform to scripture and custom. Okay, So, in a sense, that put a kind of uh, steel frame around manoeuvres, gender manoeuvres. And that is why all the reformers had to refer to scripture. Otherwise, the state would not entertain any notion of legal change. Okay. So, when widow Remarriage Act was passed, you know, to abolish Sati, it took the state 60 years, more than 60 years. Okay. It just would not move. And then Ram Mohan Roy gave a kind of a scriptural interpretation and so on. When the um, uh, Viduri remarriage bill was passed, it was done much more quickly because by that time the Indian empire was a fact and all the conquests had been done more or less and the state was in a comfortable position. And it began to think that we can now act on our civilizing mission. Okay, And get rid of the native superstitions, but it would not do it on its own. It would only do it if a liberal Brahman pundit, in the case of Hindus, yeah. offers a scriptural reinterpretation that mm. helps. Okay, so something like widow remarriage had been suggested from time to time from the 1830s. But various Mm -hmm. judges, European judges, had shot it down, saying that it would offend Hindu sentiments. It would, you know, downgrade the caste of Brahmans and so on. This time, Ishvachandra Vidyasagar was a man of absolutely legendary reputation for his Sanskrit knowledge, for his scriptural scholarship. So, he was acceptable to the state as a pundit, not so much as a liberal man, you know, Mm -hmm. not as a liberal campaigner, but he was acceptable because he was also a pundit, Brahman, orthodox, uh, orthodox in his personal sort of lifestyle, and yet liberal in his thinking. So, they quickly, in fact, he gave them a draft bill and they made it into law. But then all hell broke loose. Vidya Sagar got in first and activated the state. But then there was a huge Hindu conservative outburst. I think 55,000 petitions came opposing the bill. And many, many, uh, you know, points were, um, uh, you know, many, many adverse comments were made, which the state hadn't thought of. The state thought that, okay, this is a bill that doesn't impose anything on anybody. So if a man and a woman, a widow want to marry, it allows them to marry, but it doesn't force them, anyone to do anything. But then they uh, pointed out that the the widow's son inherits, that pollutes the whole lineage, and he's not supposed to inherit under Hindu laws and so on, inheritance laws and so on. So the state was a bit taken aback, and then the next year came the Great Rebellion of 1857. And the state identified widow remarriage act as one of the probable causes. Yeah, okay, we had offended Hindu sentiments to such an extent, so it became extremely wary. And even though the Parsi reformer Malabari had been campaigning incredibly hard for, uh, cha- um, you know, to uh, delegalized child marriage or infant marriage, the state would not listen to him. He built up a campaign in England with a lot of British statesmen and feminists. Bombay feminists were very supportive of this, but the state, the Lansdowne just dismissed him as an eccentric with a bee in his bullet and so on. Then happened in 1889, a uh, girl just above 10 was very, very brutally raped by her husband and died after, you know, 13 hours of agony. And that embarrassed lands down and he had to do something. He could not abolish child marriage because that's too firmly embedded in scripture. And no scripture actually said, don't do this. So he uh, thought that a halfway house compromise Not abolishing child marriage, but hiking up the age of consent within an outside marriage would be a better solution that would please everybody. And age of consent is that, you know, no conjugal cohabitation or cohabitation with a woman above 12 would be counted as rape. Okay. Uh, The Penal Code had defined 10 as uh, the age of consent. Now, it was just hiked up by two years. But that led to such mammoth protest demonstrations. And I noticed that this was the first mammoth street demonstration in our history. It's become so familiar to us these days. It hadn't happened before that and it got mixed up with a whole lot of anti colonial sentiments which were building up for a variety of really valid reasons from the 1870s but it also got linked up with a, a you know extremely conservative defense of everything indian and now the argument was that it offends it violates a hindu ritual of garbhadham which is that when the wife reaches puberty, within 16 days of that, the husband and the wife must cohabit. Otherwise, her womb is contaminated and the children born to her are not allowed to make ritual offerings to ancestral spirits. So they said that, look, what are you doing to us? Even Vidya Sagar said that, yes, this is what the scripture says, you can't do it. The other taking point was that in this case, the husband would be also classified as a rapist. And as we all know, marital rape is still not criminalized to this day. And you can imagine what kind of, and even Vidya Sagar said that, okay, you can hike up the age if you want to, but do not make it a rape for the husband. Do not categorize it as a rape for, as rape for husband. So that was that. It was a mixture of anti-colonial nationalism, especially spearheaded by Lokmanya Tilak in Bombay. It was also, you know, sheer orthodoxy. And one might ask, why wasn't there a similar outrage when the penal code uh, criminalized cohabitation uh, below the age of 10? And now Sabarimala episode is an answer to that. So, Hindu medical ethic considers 10 to be the age when puberty for girls arrives punctually. That is why women can't enter that temple between 10 and 50. Okay, so these are the two different contexts. As for women's consent that you asked about, you know, consent is not something ever ready, always out there uh, in a very um recognizable form, and we can just pick it up and show it. It needs a lot of conditions to be formed, to be articulated, especially for women, yeah. okay? Because in their kind of situation, domestic situation, they, are, they don't get access to many, or in those days, they wouldn't get access to many kinds of ideas They wouldn't even know what is Shastra, what is not. They would have no means of expression. Where would they write? Where would they write about sexual contact below the age of 10? Now, if we look at the literature, we find in Bengal from the 1850s, a lot of women were writing. They did not mention conjugal rape, Some of them did. I mean, a few of them did, but slightly later. They did not mention it explicitly, but they talked of the terror of the first night, the terror of the husband, the terror of early marriage, the pain of it. They wrote about it, and they also wrote about the trials of tribulations of widow. In, in fact, when similar cases of rape and death came to court, we find women actually testifying in unashamed detail about what had happened to them, just as we do in the Pulmoni case. Her mother, her grandmother, her aunt depose in court and say that this was a criminal act, it was rape, she had not menstruated as yet, she was immature and all that, so... In the court cases, we really find the women's voice. So, you know, consent is a big thing and it has to meet certain conditions of its production. And for rich women or for upper caste women, the conservative situation in which they would be, you know, bound hand and feet would preclude articulating something as daring as a, a rejection of, faith or the dictates of faith. For poorer women, the sheer poverty would not allow them to get into the debates at all. However, Bombay feminists were exceedingly uh, up in arms and very, very militant and very, very rebellious. And that's an extraordinary thing. What causes the You know, this kind of extra mile they had walked from the 19th century, I can't imagine, but they were very outspoken. From Rahmabai to uh, Ramabai, they all wrote about the Hindu marriage system. And Rahmabai especially, because she had been married off in her infancy. Padma Anagol has written extensively about their agitation, their petitions, their... Even from Bengal, certain doctors, women doctors, wrote about uh, the inadvisability of infant marriage and infant cohabitation and so on. But uh, Bombay women were far more active.
0: And would you say that at the time of the Age of Consent Act and the debate, the public debate around it, would you say that that's the first time that we saw public debate around the question of
1: consent? No, no, no. Uh, during sati From the early 19th century, it had been happening with Sati, and not just about gender, but, you know, these were really the first public debates, because public debates need a public sphere to be debated in, within, and that was just coming up with print culture, with newspapers, with, you know, uh, spread of literacy of schools, with a postal system which carried newspapers to different regions. With you know, uh, gradually with railways, when people gathered to demonstrate, to come in uh, from different areas, and so on. So, uh, from the the early 19th century, sati, in fact, I think, led to the publication of 25 new newspapers. So it was a hot topic.
0: And I think one very interesting point that you raised in, when you were talking about the idea of consent, that it's something that has to be produced and, and it's a very complicated thing for, for you to be able to understand and articulate even for yourself. I was wondering in terms of the sort of mindset that we have seen in the public debates around, say, the age of consent debate. Do you see similarities or continuities still today in the kind of discourse that we're seeing around, say, something like marital rape? I mean, I think you sort of talked about that yourself. But do you feel like there are certain similarities that we see? Because even there, I remember you'd written about how the question of consent was never actually looked at as the woman consenting, it was about when, biologically speaking, when when is she coming off biological age to be able to engage in conjugal cohabitation? So if you could talk a little bit about that, I think that would be helpful.
1: In the first place, consent is itself a very ambiguous category because we consent to something which we ourselves haven't authored, if you think about it. We so, we consent to accept rules made by others, or we don't consent. Okay, it's not something that we ourselves have produced. So, that's one thing to keep in mind. From the time of Sati onwards, there's a peculiar thing and something new in our history altogether. Both the orthodoxy and the reformers are speaking in the name of the woman's consent. Okay, So the the orthodoxy is saying she burns herself out of her own will and pleasure, whereas Ram Mohan Roy is saying, no, she is, you know, through a horrendous sort of uh, violence, she is uh, tied up and, you know, put under a log of logs of wood and so on, and then she is burnt. There is no question of consent. So the interesting question is, why does the woman's consent suddenly appear in the public sphere and in public debates? Why does it happen? That, you know, both sides claim it. And the same thing happens with widow remarriage. Widows like to be deprived of sexual gratification. They like to go under this. Uh, very severe dietary deprivations. They like the ritual self-mortifications. They like the sartorial deprivations. All yeah. of that, the widow does it out of her own will and push. Whereas, you know, Vidya Sagar is saying, where does she have a choice? You know, she might be one or two by the time she's widowed, and she'll never know anything else. So there is a Uh, An interesting thing is that both sides are trying to speak in the name of the woman's consent, and the woman's consent can't ever be one thing, really. And we saw that once again in Sabarimala. So we feminists, I think, should distinguish between a kind of desirable kind of consent to something and the actual Uh, processes through which consent is formed, consent is dissolved, consent is withheld. There was a moment when all of us thought that what we say that women want, you know, is right. Women do want that. But, you know, we were actually saying this is what they should want. And, uh, you know, I don't agree with her, but Judith Butler has called it another form of exercise of power, this time by feminism, that you claim to represent the person, and that's a form of putting her under your control. I don't agree with that, because in that sense, there is no resistance left. And in order to resist, we must assume that You know, as far as we know, the things we are struggling for are right. But we have to take these problems, you know, and not just shove them away.
0: Uh, It it would be interesting to see how do you think this idea of, uh, you know, the sort of public discourse and debate that we're seeing around consent has evolved over time? I think now in the public sphere with even something like, you know, both waves of the Me Too movement that we've seen or on on the internet, there's been a lot of discourse around this idea of consent. It's really interesting that you mentioned, you know, uh, Judith Butler's idea on that. So I was just wondering if, what are the ways in which it has evolved? and And if there is that problem of how do you define a, a woman's consent or or anyone's consent and who can speak on her behalf. How does one resolve that question?
1: I don't think it has any easy resolution because it could be that uh, many widows wanted to commit suicide and burn themselves alive. Uh, but since that act is directed only for the husband and it's not reciprocated, so it means that the woman is obliged to do something which is in unimaginably painful, but that only for the sake of the husband, uh, not for her child, not for her parents, not for a friend, etc., not for a lover, but the husband. So it makes the husband absolutely supreme for the woman. And then it is an example not to die by burning, because uh, Sati was never compulsory. But if you can even burn yourself to death for the husband, after the husband's death, what is that there that you can't do for the living husband? Or the dead husband's memory? So it's a very, very bad, you know, vicious example uh, that Sati stands for for the living woman, Even when she is not being asked to burn herself or she's not willing to burn herself it asks for unreciprocated unconditional and limitless commitment to the husband and for the husband alone for no other person and so even if she consents even if she insists do we endorse that or not it's a complicated question. We can say, yes, that particular woman, that particular widow is consenting to this. Now, widow remarriage is something different uh, because uh, you know, not all widows would definitely want to marry. And Vidya Sagar, when he was thinking of uh, widow remarriage, he was referring to child widows, though he put no age ceiling for widow remarriage. And in fact, one of the clauses left the provision that uh, if the adult widow wants to marry, then she does not need any uh, her guardian's consent. And I think that in the 19th century was the most, the the broadest interpretation of her consent, her own consent, because, you know, in Hindu marriage, the girl's consent does not matter or not even asked for. She's a gift, kanyadaan. Marriage is kanyadan, the gift of a virgin. She is just transferred from one lineage to another. So here, for the first time, the notion that she must consent to, she can consent to the marriage, is being introduced through the back doors so of to speak. In the case of age of consent, you know how much would a girl below the age of 12 Uh, have access to? What would she have access to in the first place to form consent and in the second place to express consent? What does she know about intercourse with a grown-up man? In certain cases, then, consent is, in a sense, partially irrelevant.
0: So, I mean, moving on to a slightly different question, but I think it's connected in a way. Um, I mean, you've written about how Hindu women became the symbols of the Indian nation. If you could tell us a little about how this happened and what did the Hindu woman come to represent
1: as a symbol of the nation? The Hindu nation idea, not the Indian nation, because the two, uh, some uh, political groups try to Make the two synonymous, but they are not actually, because there are other definitions of the Indian nation uh, that are not what the Hindu nationalists define. So first, the woman becomes a symbol of Hindu community and Hindu community as represented by a Brahmanical ritual regime, which the conservatives are trying to show up. And they're trying to shore up not only in the name of the Hindu woman's consent to the ritual regime, but also the Hindu woman's heroism. So Sati is an act of heroism. Jahar, where hundreds of women, you saw Padmavat, uh, hundreds of women apparently burned themselves to death if the uh, royal house was being invaded by a Muslim ruler, Uh, that was absolutely the ultimate sign of not only Hindu female heroism, but it's a unique heroism because nowhere in the world do women perform that. So it shows that Hinduism is the greatest religion of all, that Hindu women are more chaste than all other women, and Hindu women are braver than all other women. OK, therefore, they are. And there are even a kind of nationalism that builds up around it. Look at us men. We were defeated in all the battles. We allowed ourselves to be colonized. We have forgotten how to fight. We are not, no longer brave. You know, that kind of uh, emasculated Indian or uh, feminine man and so on. But look at our women. They will stand, you know, they will lie on a pyre and cheerfully, smilingly burn themselves to death, or they will you know, fling themselves into the flames in their hundreds when their realm seems to be. So that was the first thing, the Hindu community. The woman becomes a symbol of heroism, of chastity, of greatness, and of Hindu supremacy over every other race and religion. Then comes a moment when the Hindu nation, starting with the late 19th century, but taking a definite shape from the early 20th century, the Hindu community is now defined as a nation. From late 19th century, the Indian nation is being defined and redefined in many ways. One is the Kind of more liberal Congress inclusive nationalism uh, from the late 19th century, where India is a nation of all Indians. And there is also the Hindu uh, nationalism, which uh, is, or the Muslim nationalism, that, you know, we need a nation of our own. But the Hindu nationalism is that this country belongs to us because it's a country marked by. Um you know, or Hindu places of or for geographical features which bear Hindu names and Hindu pilgrimages, and because Hinduism is the only authentic faith that was born in this country. Every other faith comes from outside. So Hindu nation becomes a reality and it takes a highly theoretical form by the time Savarkar enters the field. And the Hindu woman, in in many ways, becomes a symbol of the Hindu nation, first embodied in a goddess figure. When Bankim Chandra Chattopadhyay wrote Ananda the novel, in 1880s, 1882, I think, he imagines for the first time he invents a goddess. You know, before everybody, he invents a goddess. And there's a lot of, you know, surprise in the public sphere at that point. He invents a goddess who is an amalgam of three forms of Durga, Durga, Kali, and uh, Annapurna. So, Jagadhatri, Annapurna, Kali. And uh, the country becomes a goddess and a Hindu goddess. And so the country becomes a female figure. And anyone who fights for this Hindu nation is an avatar of this goddess. Okay? I would say that if we are looking at Hindu nationalism, increasingly it takes a masculinist turn, and the woman's figure becomes less resonant than it had been in the late 19th century. And, you know, they have to confront modernity also, a fully grown, a liberal modernity where it's not any longer very uh, correct, politically correct to talk about Sati or Johar and so on. So that's a little bit put into the back burner. And, you know, you talk about brave men like Shivaji and, uh, you know, Rana Pratap and so on. And the woman kind of recedes. So I would say that the woman as the symbol of the nation was never a rights-bearing person. She came up to contest the figure of the woman as a rights-bearing person. She was the culture-bearing person.
0: We see some of that. I think even that that idea of of the woman as this carrier of Hindu culture, and I think it 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 also reflects in the sort of moral policing that we see today in so many ways in the idea of what a ideal Hindu woman should be like. Um, I think on for the last question, I think it would be nice to um sort of go back to some of your earlier work and just like a positive note about uh, women's writing in, in India. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the sort of narratives that emerged through writing by women in India in the 19th century. And what what are some of the narratives that we see? And do we see that they had to bear a burden of double colonization in a sense? Are there ways in which you think there was resistance through that writing through articulation? In writing?
1: Certainly, there was resistance to patriarchy or a critique or questioning or problematization of patriarchy. I didn't find much engagement with colonialism. Uh, I think, uh, just like Dalit ideologues, a lot of women, especially Marathi women, said that we have been over colonized, there has been an anterior colonization going you know, much before, going back much before colonial rule began. And I have found Bengali women saying that men, maybe because you had colonized us, that, you know, you are now faced with colonialism, you know, colonization. So before you do penance for this, you will never be able to be free. Unless you make us free, allow us to you know, resist and be free. So you, uh, and then, you know, the meanings of colonization were very different for different categories of women. I think for upper caste, middle class women in the 19th century, from privileged backgrounds, colonialism opened up, or I wouldn't say colonial rule per se, but modernity opened up immensely more possibilities than they had enjoyed because upper castes were bound upper caste women were bound by the most stringent patriarchal rules which dalit ideologues had repeatedly pointed out from Kule to ambedkar to periyar you name it you know they have always pointed out that dalit people and women and upper caste women have all been you know ground down in a similar fashion so for the, though that small privileged category who had the resources to acquire education, who had uh, supportive families to allow them that, or who had the grit to fight against their families and community and make a space for themselves, it opened up possibilities. Certainly, look at Rachmaninoff uh, and so on. It was not easy. It was very difficult still, but they 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 made more space for themselves until. Uh, not because of colonial rule, but in colonial times than they had ever done it. I mean, I am a little tired of listening to uh, you know, Garbi and Maitre and Uma Chakravarti has exploded that myth very, very successfully. But for poor women, I would say that colonialism made a huge difference by, you know, adding to their work burden, taking away a lot of the existing protections, worsening economic conditions, and so on. So it Dalit women, it's another matter. And as you know, the unpalatable truth that Dalit intellectuals do not see colonial rule as a closure, but as some sort of an opening up. Not enough, but some sort of a... Similarly for women, Dalit women, they began to write, they began to assert themselves, they began to form organizations, they began to... Uh, you know, find self-respect and assert it, and so on. That happened from the late 19th, 30th, 20th century onwards. But their economic conditions were extremely, uh, you know, uh, grueling. And colonial rule didn't actively help them at all, or help Dalit men. But some openings were there. Some windows opened up in colonial times.
0: Absolutely. And I think some of these more complicated ideas are are the ones that, again, we need to think about and, and question some of the mainstream narratives around, I think, colonization and British rule, and like which inadvertently I think we see circulated now, almost as if the experience of a few people was the experience of an entire country, when really that's not the case. And that's the note we ended our conversation with Dr. Tanika Sarkar on. We hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast as much as we enjoyed listening and reflecting on some of these ideas around consent, public debates, and thinking through how we create categories around gender and categories which are up for contestation. We release a new episode of this podcast series every Monday, so be sure to tune in. This podcast is brought to you by TS Studios the production company that brings the Swaddle's creative point of view to original podcasts and films.